You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles to uh, Psalm 22, please. We'll read verse 19 through 31 in a moment. We'll pick up where we left off on Good Friday. Preach verses 1 through 18 on Good Friday, and I'll preach verse 19 through 31 today, Psalm 22, Friday we talked about the death and the suffering of our Lord, and then today we talk about His subsequent glory and all that it has and will accomplish, the hope that this resurrection from the dead of our Savior brings to us is what we'll be discussing today. So Psalm 22, verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, and you offspring of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord." And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. This or that he has done it. Bow with me for a word of prayer, please. Father in heaven, we bow and we pray and we ask that your spirit would please be sent to convict of sin and draw us to the Savior that our love of Christ might increase today and that the, save, or the lost would be saved. Please do a work among us. Use me and my frailty and my weakness, and we pray that Christ would have his way with us this morning. We pray that he would be known and made much of, and that he would be cherished. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Psalm 22, as I noted on Good Friday, recounts the death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus Christ. It was written over a thousand years before he was born, but yet it tells the story of his passion, the story of his death, and the story of his subsequent glorification after his resurrection. 
Verses 1 through 18 speak of the death of Christ on Good Friday. Verses 19 through 31 speak of the resurrection of Christ and beyond. This is a psalm of Christ's death, resurrection, and glorification. The church father Tertullian said of this psalm that it contains the whole passion of Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, this is beyond all others, the psalm of the cross. It teaches us of the cross of Jesus Christ, and it teaches us of the resurrection and the glorification of our Savior, Jesus Christ. On Friday, when we were gathered together, we saw Christ's faith is He received the abandonment of God. God abandoned him as an act of judgment towards our sins. He was abandoned by God, forsaken of God. And in fact, he was forsaken by all men as he hung there upon the cross. But in his forsakenness, in his darkest hour, as he was plunged into the abyss and singed with the fiery judgment of God... In it, he maintained faith in his darkest hour. They treated him as worse than an animal. As we saw in verse 6, it says, I am a worm and not a man. That's because they treated him worse than an animal. And when he got in their way, what did they do? But they, they cut through him. And he was surrounded, as he saw it, these wicked men surrounded him. He was surrounded by bulls. It tells us in verse 12, this is how he saw those who surrounded him. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. These bulls of Bashan were the strongest bulls because they, they um, dwelt in lush pasture lands and were very healthy bulls. And so this tells us that he essentially, metaphorically speaking, it was as if he was thrown into a bullpen of many bulls who were ruthless with him, many strong bulls. And those bulls weren't just the strength, just had the strength and the anger of bulls, but they had the ferocity of lions, as it says in verse 13. They opened wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. They depleted his strength. They surrounded him like dogs, in verse 16. And they pierced his hands and his feet. As the text of Scripture tells us at the end of verse 16, they've pierced my hands and feet. This is a depiction of Christ on the cross, of Christ surrounded by men who are taking pleasure in tormenting him. In fact, as his agony increased on the cross, it's as if their happiness increased. The more he suffered, the happier they became, to the point where verse 18 tells us, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Good Friday ended at the point of death, a brutal death, and the men were not satisfied even in his death, the wicked men that surrounded him, because they took his clothing from his back and his body, and they played games with his clothing and gambled it away. This was the joy that they took 
at the suffering of our Savior. And this was his substitutionary death for sinners. He died on Calvary's cross and was mangled and suffered. Why? For sinners, for you, and for me. So that if you believe in him, you receive complete salvation, complete forgiveness, a full pardon for all of your sin. So as I begin this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday sermon, as I begin this sermon, do you have the pardon of God? As an individual, I'm asking you, have you received God's pardon by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ? And if not, put your faith in Christ today and believe. Receive forgiveness of sins and and trust Him. Receive this full salvation that He offers. And don't despise and spurn His grace like those men did that crucified Him. This is His substitutionary death. Well, Friday actually closed on a low point with the talk of them casting lots after they crucified Him, casting lots over His clothing. Well, Sunday begins at a high point, and as time progresses from Easter Sunday, the point gets higher and higher and better and better, in fact, as the life of the resurrection continues to spread over the face of the earth. Resurrection Sunday was like the crack of dawn, but as time has progressed since, The sun has become higher and higher, and life has spread further and further around the globe. It's important to remember that as our Christ was suffering on the cross, he was praying, as we noted in verses 4 and 5. It says, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. And so... What comes out in the crucifixion is that as the Lord was hanging upon the cross and as he was meeting the dark hell of God's wrath, he was crying out to God, proclaiming to God that he was trusting in his faithfulness. In verse 10, it says, On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. And verse 2 says, O my God, my God, by day, But you do not answer. I cry, O God, my God, by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And so there's this sense in which he's praying for deliverance on the cross. He's praying that God would rescue him. And while he's praying this, these prayers are not answered. But Resurrection Sunday is the answer of his prayers. It was when he rose from the dead is when he saw that his prayers from the cross on Friday, prayed for deliverance and rescue from God and that God would not forsake him completely. These were realized on Sunday. And so, even as they treated him as a worm on Friday, God brought him through this painful torment and death to Sunday, and he rose from the dead on Sunday. 
So let me note four truths of the resurrection from the text that I read. One, we'll see that the resurrection is a testimony to Christ as he sees his prayers answered. Number two, we'll see that the resurrection is a testimony to his brothers and the congregation in the answer to his prayers. Number three, we'll see that his resurrection is a testimony to the nations, as all of the nations are told of this King Jesus who rose from the dead. Four, we'll see that the resurrection is a testimony to the future, to all future generations. God will always preserve a people for himself who will believe the truth. A testimony to himself, a testimony to his brothers, a testimony to the nations, and a testimony to the future. Let's look first at this resurrection of Christ being a testimony to himself. Verse 19 is where we began today, and it begins with this word, but, and that's because it, re, it marks a, a transition in the text from despair of the previous passage to the hopeful news of the resurrection in this passage. This word, but, here, it, it marks the beginning of another prayer of Christ's. And this is the last prayer before the hope dawns. And so we see in this prayer, we see that he prays for the nearness of God in verse 19. O God, O Lord, do not be far off. Well, why is he praying for the nearness of God? Because he saw in verse 1, we see in verse 1 that God is distant. He's forsaken of God. Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then not only does he pray for the nearness of God, but he prays for help from God. Look at verse 19 at the end of it. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Now, why would he pray for help? Well, he's praying for help because people are treating him like a worm. He's praying for help because men have surrounded him like bulls who are tossing him around like a rag doll. And he's praying for help because they've encompassed him like a pack of rabid dogs who are biting away at his hands and at his feet as they nail him to the cross. He prays. In this prayer that we're looking at, he prays for deliverance from the assault on his life in verse 20. Look at, deliver my soul from the sword. They're coming after him with a venomous sword and wanting to essentially hack him to pieces to make sure that he's dead for sure. And why would he pray for this deliverance from the attack? Well, he prays for the deliverance from the attack because he's being attacked all of these wicked people who want him destroyed. And then he prays for deliverance from the lions in verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And that, of course, goes all the way back to verse 13 where it says, they open their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. Now, lions don't roar unless they have the upper hand in the fight and their prey is about as good as dead. And so he's... He's praying that the Lord would rescue him from this scene that was played out for us on Good Friday from the first part of this psalm. Praying for the nearness of God because he's forsaken of God. Praying for help from God. Praying for the deliverance from the assault on his life. Praying for the deliverance from the dogs that are attacking him. And praying for deliverance from the lions. This is a 
five-fold request for deliverance from a deadly attack. And I want you to see as we look at the testimony of the resurrection to Jesus Christ himself, to the person that his prayers were answered, look at verse 21. He prays, he prays, he prays, he prays, he prays, and look at how he ends this prayer in verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's done. That's, that's emblematic of the resurrection of the dead. It's, it's finished. They mauled him and they crucified him and they drove a spear into his side to make sure that he was dead. And they mocked him and they spat upon our Savior and they mangled him and he was forsaken of man Betrayed by man, betrayed by his friends, and forsaken of God. And then he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. And then look at the confidence at the end of verse 21, after the prayer. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's done. Christ himself was the first witness to the answered prayers. And the resurrection itself was an answer to his own prayers. If the Lord God heard the prayers of Christ on the cross to the point of answering him on the day of resurrection, when it looked like there could be no answer, he was dead, right? But if the Lord God heard the prayers of Christ on the cross, do you think the Lord God hears the prayers of Christ as he mediates on our behalf right now. Right? Christ has, is ever living, the scripture tells us, to make intercession for us. He's entered the heavenlies. And as our high priest, the scriptures tell us that he's standing before God at this very moment and he's pleading on behalf of his people, on behalf of you if you're in Christ. And he's, he's pleading, he's actually interceding on you even if you don't know what to pray on behalf of yourself. So if you're in such a dark place that you don't even know what to pray, you can rest assured that Jesus is praying on behalf of you before the Father right now in your darkest hour. And if God heard the prayers of Christ as he pled with him from the cross on Good Friday, forsaken of God, forsaken of man, and if God heard those prayers, don't you think he hears the prayers of Christ right now for you? The resurrection is a testimony to himself, which should inspire confidence in Christ. Is his prayers answered, then his prayers will be answered again, even as he prays for you. But not only is the resurrection a testimony to himself, the resurrection is a testimony to his brothers. This is the story. The resurrection goes from Jesus to the resurrection goes to his brothers. The resurrection goes to the nations. The resurrection goes to the future. It's a story that we're following in Psalm 22 here. The testimony moves from his own witness to his own resurrection, his own answered prayers. It moves from his own witness to his answered prayers to the witness of his brothers. In verse 22, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Now, what is he telling? He's been beaten to death, basically. And he's prayed, and he's prayed, and he's prayed, and he's prayed. And then he closes his prayer by acknowledging that God answered his prayer. 
And then as a result of it, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Now on resurrection morning, if you remember the story from Matthew, it's in Matthew 28, you've read it. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they were the first to see and behold the empty tomb. And then they, they met the resurrected Lord. And do you remember what our resurrected Lord said to Mary, Magdalene and the other Mary? In Matthew 28, verse 10, he told them, Go tell my brothers, the disciples. Right? The disciple, he, he humbled himself by becoming a man, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, forever truly God, and now truly man. And he humbled himself and by doing so became our brother. And his, one of the first things he says to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary is after he has witnessed to this answered prayer himself and then Mary and Mary are witness to the answered prayer, one of the first things he tells them is, go tell my brothers. And that's precisely what they do. And so the news of the resurrection spreads to his disciples. And it spreads to those who had been brokenhearted over the death of Jesus Christ. And it spreads. And what it does is it spreads. Is it doesn't just spread for the sake of spreading, but it spreads to foster worship. It, to, to foster the singing, to, to inspire the singing of God's people. So if you look at verse 23, after he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. It says, look at this, what this verse tells us to do. After he's told us of the news of the resurrection, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Look at those verbs, those commandments in that text. Praise him, glorify him, stand in awe of him. The response to the news that our Lord is not dead, but that he has risen from the grave is a response that inspires praise, glorification of Christ, and of us standing in awe of him in congregational worship is we communicate this good news back to God and communicate it to one another. And this is what congregational worship is. What we're doing is we're singing together as a church, is we're doing specifically what this psalm says, and we're testifying that we believe that he is raised from the dead, that we believe God is who he says he is, and beyond that, we're not just testifying to God, we're testifying to each other. But when else does the church gather to corporately, in a unified way, in unison, testify to what has happened, but in congregational singing? This is why congregational singing, the gathering of the church and congregational singing is so important, one of them. Because it is a reminder by everyone in this room, as we sing together the praise of God and acknowledge the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's communicating, it's strengthening our hearts in this great belief that has been passed down to us. And so, if you come to church, which you should and you have, you should sing because we gather to sing and we gather to sing his praises. Like I think some 
are of the mindset, well, they, they come for the sermon and the singing's just the warm-up. But the, the reality is, is the object of the sermon is to inspire worship. That's the goal. The goal of the preaching is to drive you to Jesus Christ and inspire you to exalt from your heart in what he has done. So as an application of the resurrection, I mean, you did a good job singing as the service started. I hope you do an even better job as the service closes. Because this, look at what it says. As a result, and, and he's communicated the resurrection to you, hasn't he? Have you not heard about it? Did you hear, did you hear that Jesus rose from the dead? Right? And so as a result of having heard this news, what are you supposed to do? Well, it tells you what you're supposed to do. It's pretty clear. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel. God heard Him when He cried to Him. Look at what it says in verse 24. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So, so remember we looked at verse 1? Friday, what did verse 1 say? Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 24, the prayers are answered. He has not hidden his face from him. The smile of God returns, and the presence of God returns. And his smile rests upon Jesus Christ and upon his people now having suffered the death and the burial, the crucifixion and the propitiation of God's wrath. And here he is on record telling us to sing and on record telling us to sing because God heard his prayers. Aren't you glad that God heard the prayers of Christ on the cross? And not only, by the way, this is the way it works. The beauty, one of the beautiful things about the resurrection is, yes, this is absolutely historical fact. Christ rose from the dead. The tomb's empty. But it, it captures the archetypes of Scripture and the archetypes of God's plan. And what are the archetypes of God's plan? Well, this is how the Lord works. He brings His people to, to the abyss and hangs us over the abyss and even could drop us into the abyss, but he never lets go. And eventually, the night turns to dawn and the sun cracks. And the darkness turns to light. This is the way the Lord works. He works this way always. And the resurrection captures this in the most beautiful way. The resurrection is absolutely true. 100%. And in being 100% true, it perfectly captures God's repeating story within Scripture where he brings people to the brink where the temptation to doubt him and to disbelieve in him is pressing in on our souls. And just when we think we can't take it anymore and it's the end, he rescues us. And that's what he did in Christ. And if you're in Christ today, that's what he's done with you, hasn't he? He rescued you from your sins. And it is his story of deliverance again and again for his people that is so beautifully captured in the story of this resurrection. And what does the resurrection do? Well, it's a testimony to his brothers as he invites us to sing together. And not only to sing, but to feast. The singing is the feasting, and the feasting is the singing. If you look at verse 26, 
It says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord and may your hearts live forever. This is an invitation to feast upon this good news that Christ has risen. The brothers hear of Christ, they worship Christ, and then they feast upon the delicacies of God's grace in Christ. The, the gospel is an invitation to a feast. And you, you feast on these delicacies of grace. And what are they? The grace of the forgiveness of sins. The grace of the second birth. Right? The grace of assurance of salvation. The grace of the works of the Holy Spirit of God in your life through sanctification and the production of the Spirit's fruit. The, the grace of actually knowing God. You get to know God through Christ. And the grace of everlasting hope. This is a, this is a, a table that has been spread for us. And the text tells us that we eat and we feast from this table to the point of satisfaction. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and we ourselves eat and are satisfied in the grace of God, the grace of knowing other Christians who believe Him, and having the fellowship of the saints together as a church, and the grace of having our hearts warmed by Christian fellowship as the Spirit of God moves among us and strengthens and fills our hearts. Have you come to this feast? Have you heard this news? Have you heard this testimony of Jesus, that He rose from the dead, that forgiveness has been purchased, and that the banquet of God's grace has been spread, and that you can have fellowship and union with the triune God and fellowship with the church of Jesus Christ? Well, this is an invitation to come to this feast and sing that you've come to this feast, and it's an invitation to say, as the text says in verse 26, those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Come to the banquet of the resurrection. And feast upon God's grace and live forever. And sing to Him. Praise the Lord. Well, the resurrection, it's a testimony to Himself that Christ Himself is, is risen from the dead. God heard His prayers. It's a testimony to his brothers, the congregation, the people of God, that Christ indeed is risen, and, and this is to inspire praise so that we can feast upon his grace. And then beyond that, beyond the people of God, it's to become a testimony to all the nations. If you look at verses 27 through 29, it, this, is, this is gradual. It's, it's to Christ who sees the answered prayer. It's to the brothers who celebrate the answered prayer, and then it's, it's to the nations who come in and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it, it continues to grow. The blessings of this gift of God continue to flourish. And I think too often we have a tendency to become, you could even say, infatuated with the gloom and the darkness of the time and to dwell too much upon it as opposed to the bright optimism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is a great bright optimism in this gospel. Pay attention to what the text says. All the ends of the earth shall praise him, or shall remember rather, verse 27, and turn to the Lord. And then look what it says. And 
all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingdoms belong, or kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You, you notice the repetition of those words, all? What is it telling us? All the ends of the earth will actually remember his resurrection. The day will come when they will. And then what else will they do? And turn to the Lord. See what it says? And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Why? For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Verse 28. Christ rose from the dead to extend life to all people across the whole globe that they might participate and join in the praises of Jesus Christ. And today, there are still many more who are yet to join us. But this has traveled across the nations. It hasn't traveled to the point of full completion yet, but it has traveled... Are we, are we, as far as the advancement of the gospel goes, you can look at how dark the world is if you want, but as far as the advancement of the gospel goes, has it traveled further or lesser than the day of his resurrection? Further. It's gradual, but it's traveled further. And all over the world on this Resurrection Sunday, there's congregations that are gathering to sing and exalt in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This started with him, and then Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, and then the disciples, and then it spread, and then it spread, and then it spread. And here we are 2,000 years later, and it's spread across the face of the earth, and I have every reason to believe that it will spread even further. Just as the warm spring air blows and the sun begins to shine, and what happens? Well, the daffodils come, and then the tulips come, and then the apple trees bud, and the leaves burst forth on the maples. This is what's happening with the dawn of the gospel, is that sinners are rising from the dead in their sin, like people dead in their sins coming to life in Jesus Christ through his gospel. And this is a gospel that's for everyone. Look at what it says in the text. All the families of the nations, all the ethnicities of the nations... For everybody. It's a gospel that does not discriminate. And so regardless of your ethnic heritage or your language or the culture from which you've come, this is an open invitation to come to the banquet of God's grace. Come to Jesus Christ. Do you want to see the nations reconciled and sinners reconciled to one another? It will come as we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the hope of the nations. So come to Him. Verse 29 says, All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, and before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. From the greatest to the least, men and women shall praise him. Charles Spurgeon commented, and he said, In the latter days, the later days, the mighty of the earth shall eat, shall taste of redeeming grace and dying love, and shall worship with all their hearts the God who deals so bountifully with us in Christ Jesus. This is an optimistic view of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the resurrection lead to? All the ends of the earth remembering. All the families of the nations worshiping him. Why? Because that he owns them. He died for the whole world in this sense. 
For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now, now look, see how this has progressed? What does this progress from? It's progressed from the despair of Christ's suffering on the cross. And these humble prayers in the middle of his affliction being shot up to heaven, when all looked hopeless, to the point now we are in the text where all the nations are coming in to praise him. See, what started in those humble prayers in the darkness on the cross has, is leading to the ingathering of nations coming to Jesus Christ, even kings coming to Jesus Christ. You know, if, if Christ's prayers in his darkest hours were answered, do you think your prayers in the name of Christ in your darkest hours won't be answered? This is, this is, not, this is an invitation to pray to the Lord. And cry out to him when you're in your moment of despair. Because yes, this is absolutely true. The resurrection, the, the death of Christ led to the resurrection, led to the advancement of the gospel, to the ingathering of the nations. But this is the way that God typically works, too. In our darkest hours, we can have hope that the light is coming. Because this is what he does with his people. He brings them to the point of despair and death and darkness itself so that he can bless them and we can provide testimony to his sovereign grace and his goodness to us. It's, it's a testimony to him. His prayers are answered. Then it spreads to his brothers and then to the ends of, earth, of the earth. And then finally and fourthly, this resurrection is a testimony to the future. As verse 30 through 31 says, a testimony to the future. The gospel light will, will never be extinguished. You might look at the world and you might say, oh boy, it's getting dark. But look at what this says. It's never going to be so dark that the gospel of light is extinguished. There will always be God's faithful people on earth. Posterity shall serve him. Verse 30. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. So the, the next generation will learn of him. And they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. The generation of the little babies that are being carried in the womb today and even the little babies that are even yet to be conceived, that generation will hear of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. All the generations that are yet to come will hear of His glory. There will always be a faithful church on earth, no matter the darkness or the opposition, God will preserve a people to praise Him and give Jesus a reward for His suffering. The gospel has advanced despite the fact that militaries and governments and populations have assaulted the church for 2,000 years, and the gospel has advanced and his people have flourished. There will always be a generation to praise him. And this should be an invitation of the little children to come to Jesus. If you're a little child, you're a young person here, your parents have taught you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to believe in him. And you need to put your faith in Him, because this promises that a future generation will yet praise Him. So here's my point. If you don't, God will raise someone else up who will. He's always going to preserve a people for Himself. And so if the little children in this room decide not to believe in Him, I tell you what, He will raise up people who yet will believe in Him, and yet will offer worship up to Him that He deserves. It's a promise to a future generation. He will always have a faithful church on earth. This, this starts with his prayers when he's suffering on the cross, and then the realization of his prayers when he rises from the dead, 
and then the advancement of that news to his brothers and then to the nations, and then the promise that it won't just stop at the nations, the promise that it will carry on to even future generations. This is the order of the text. It is a gospel that continues to advance and continues to take hold and continues to draw people in to the point where eventually all of the earth will be drawn into the worship of God. All the kings of the nations will bow down to Him. This text in verse 1 of chapter 22 began with a serious note of despair on Good Friday. But then it ends on Resurrection Sunday with great hope. It ended with the God-forsakenness of Jesus Christ, or it began with the God-forsakenness of Jesus Christ, and it ends with the entire world passing on the knowledge of His resurrection to yet generations to come. God heard Christ's prayers on the cross, and God is yet even to continue to answer His prayers today. The resurrection tells us anything? Well, it tells us that we have hope for the future. Christ heard of the answered prayers through His own resurrection. He passed it on to His brothers who spread it across the world. It will continue to spread across the world and then yet be passed on to a future generation. And it all started there on the cross. This good news of salvation continues to spread.